Okay, welcome everybody uh, to uh, Best of Both Worlds, uh, part one of this uh, mini-series. Uh, this is uh, a course that I first gave uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago, and uh, to a different different audience. Uh, and uh, but it's something that I've been thinking about uh, the issue of uh, insights from and in insights from and into uh, pop culture. Uh, I've been thinking about for uh, for quite a while. Um, and uh, it's nice nice to be able to see familiar faces and, uh, and names from uh, past uh, past and present. So thanks to everybody who's here. Um, I actually have, besides the seven sessions of this uh, mini course, I actually have 15 more sessions. Um, but as of now, uh, this is just the uh, the 17. But so that's why I called this, even though it appears on the uh, Web Yeshiva uh, site as uh, uh, best of both worlds. Uh, from my perspective, this is best of both worlds, heroes and icons, like miniseries uh, one. And uh, this is, uh, let me show you what, what, the, uh, what the plan is. Uh, this is the, uh, the Web Yeshiva page. Uh, that hopefully is how you got here. Um, if you scroll down, it shows you the titles of the seven classes that I'm going to, uh, to be giving as part of the series. Uh, tonight we'll be doing storytelling, the value of fantasy, uh, and then you see the other titles over here, just in case you uh, end up being interested in one but not the others, just to be aware of the uh, of the timing. Each one taking place uh, at this time on uh, on on Thursdays, the next today and six uh, Thursdays from now. I just wanted to show one thing that was not so, it's not so obvious. For, since not everybody's familiar with this this version of the Web Yeshiva site, and that is next to the date, in this case November 5th, on the right-hand side of every date, there is uh, a little down arrow. It looks like a V inside a circle. Uh, actually, it looks like a Valium. I haven't seen one of those in a while. Uh, if you click that, that will, which I'm about to do now, it will open up the material that's associated with that class. Okay, so what I do is on the day of the class, I upload the just first of all, this is the, the subtitles that, uh, that will be on the source sheet, and these are the handouts. The first handout, and you could download this anytime from when I uh, upload it the day of the class, anytime uh, after that, there's the source sheet, which we will go through uh, during the class, and then there's also a supplement. There will be one or two supplements. Uh, for each session, which we will not do in class, but it's related information that I think people might find interesting, maybe something to print out and look at uh, over Shabbat after the class. So the one for today, which we're not going to do at all, but here it is on the, uh, on the website, is called uh, Fantasy and Jews. It's uh, an article or an overview and, and a follow-up. Uh, in any case, uh, that's... Um, that's to explain what uh, where we're, what what the plan is for this uh, for this course, um, uh, in general uh, for uh, for this um, for this uh, uh, mini course, uh, questions and answers, questions and comments uh, should be through uh, through the chat, meaning the uh, the part that you type on the uh, on the side of the uh, of the screen, meaning not not with your uh, your mic, 
and uh, hopefully I'll see the, the questions or comments and be able to respond to them, even if for whatever reason I miss uh, a, uh, a comment, then I'll, I'll get to it, I'll plan to get to it at the end of the, uh, of the session. And then uh, by which point, I w at a certain point, at 50 whatever minutes uh, in, then I'll end the class officially, I'll end the recording, and then if anybody wants to stay and ask questions either through the chat or through the, the audio, then uh, I'll have some, uh, some time for that. Uh, okay, so uh, let's get started. Uh, this is, there's a kind of, it's not exactly an introductory topic, but it'll have to do. Uh, storytelling and the value of fantasy, and I'm defining fantasy here um, as imaginative literature, which is, uh, we'll see that one or two of the sources uh, on the source sheet uh, call it that. In other words, for purposes of what we're talking about, when I say fantasy, I don't mean fantasy as opposed to science fiction. Or, uh, or when I say fantasy, and some people, when they say fantasy, they only maybe uh, maybe rolling, but the point that I'm going to argue or show you sources that that argue the point, uh, the value of the value is not so much in the genre as in the fact that it's imaginative literature, literature that that helps you imagine things, and that could be not only well, books uh, that that have uh, uh, wizards or magic, uh, but could also be all sorts of uh, books or other uh, aspects of culture that you might not, they're not officially called fantasy, but they're good because they have this, this aspect. And I'm going to combine this with talking about storytelling that's going to be in the first, the first two pages. Um, and storytelling and fantasy are not the same thing, but they overlap for our purposes. Um, the, and in both cases, what I have in the back of my mind is how does this relate to children's literature, even though officially we're not talking about children's literature, but I'm especially interested uh, in that and uh, the value of children's literature. I'm going to argue that to some extent the value of children's literature is these two things, the value of storytelling and the, uh, the value of uh, fantasy. Uh, anyway, let's take a look at part of speech given by Philip Pullman. Uh, when he won the Carnegie Medal. Uh, the Carnegie Medal is the uh, top uh, prize in, in England for, uh, uh, for children's literature. And there is, uh, even though, of course, he's uh, Philip, uh, where'd it go? Philip Pullman is best known for the, his Dark Materials series, uh, a series of books which was made into uh, one bad movie and then a, a much better a TV series that they're in the middle of right now. But I want to point out, since I mentioned Pullman, that he also wrote a lot of other books, mostly for children, but not only the Sally Lockhart series and a whole bunch of independent books. So even if, for say, if like me, you did not like his, the Dark Materials uh, series, uh, he, he still has some really excellent material. My favorite book of his is, uh, is this one, I Was a Rat, uh, which is a uh, retelling of the Cinderella story from the perspective of the boy who was a, a rat turned into a boy to, uh, as part of the, uh, of the uh, pumpkin turning into a coach. And unfortunately, he didn't turn back, and now he has to live in this world of Cinderella as a, as a boy, but really he just wants to be a rat. 
you might not be able to tell from that description, but the book is a very clever satire of the media. Uh, it's it's uh, pretty pretty impressive, and uh, even I'm, I'm recommending that that particular uh, book of Phil uh, Pullman. Anyway, so speak when he accepted the medal for uh, for uh, children's literature. So he made a point that I, I didn't see other people talk about. Um, there are some themes that can only be dealt with adequately in a children's book, because in adult literary fiction, stories are there on sufferance. Uh, other things are more important, technique, style, literary knowingness. And adult writers who deal in straightforward stories find themselves sidelined into a genre like crime or science fiction, where nobody expects literary craftsmanship. And then those books are not taken seriously. No, nobody gets the Nobel Prize for, for writing in a genre, only for literary fiction. Uh, but, he goes on to say, there's more wisdom in a story than volumes of, of philosophy. And by a story, I mean not only Woodward Riding Hood, Cinderella, but also the great novels, Jane Eyre, Middlemarch, Bleak House, novels where the story is at the center of the writer's attention, where the plot actually matters. In contrast, he says, the present day would-be George Eliot's take up their stories as if with a pair of tongues. They're embarrassed by them. If they could write novels without stories in them, they would, and sometimes they do. But what characterizes the best of children's authors, in other words, we're not talking about children's literature in general, we're talking about the best. Characterizes that is that those authors are not embarrassed to tell stories. And if you start telling a story, you've got to carry on until you get to the end. You can't provide two ends and invite the reader to choose between them. Or, as in a highly praised recent adult novel, I'm about to stop reading three different beginnings. In a book for children, you can't put the plot on hold. Because, uh, thank God, your readers are not sophisticated. They've got more important things in mind than your dazzling skill with wordplay. They want to know what happens next. That phrase, uh, what happens next, is the part that I skipped, where Neil Gaiman, one of the... Uh, 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 most impressive uh, fantasy uh, authors writing today, that's where he says, if he had to put uh, a quote for a library wall, like for somebody to paint on the wall of a library, he would suggest, and then what happened? Philip Holman continues, those adults who truly enjoy story and plot and character could hardly do better than to look among the children's books. That's a very different way of looking at it. In other words, what makes a book a children's book? Short answer is it's written on a level that a, children can, that a child uh, can understand. Okay, but can an adult or should an adult read a child's book? And he's saying at least the better ones, you should, because that's where the stories are. And there's a spinoff, a social benefit. All stories teach whether the storyteller intends them to or not. And Philip Pullman suggests that that alone is the reason why stories are better than teaching morality. Okay, he has his own axe to grind, but he, has, he ends on uh, ends this section anyway. Uh, Thou shalt not is soon forgotten, but once upon a time lasts forever. That stories have a major impact uh, on, on, uh, on us, on us as children and on us as adults. And speaking of once upon a time... Uh, Old friend of mine, Rabbi Neil Fleischman, who teaches um, in the Frisch School, point, points out in source number two, the opening word of the Torah, Breshit, is not so far off from once upon a time. And then you can get into a whole discussion, uh, you know, the first, 
one of the first Rashi's in the Torah. Why does the Torah start with Breshid? Why didn't it start with the laws? One of the answers, one of the many answers to that question, uh, which I, is in an, among other places, is in an essay by Rabbi Sachs, not on the source sheet, a different, uh, different essay, which is like, we learn so much. We learn so much from the stories of Breshit. So that's, that's the way to convey uh, lessons in ways that uh, words, uh, thou shalt, do this, do not do that. Uh, it's, not as, it's not as powerful. That's one way in which, notice a very subtle segue here from uh, stories in general to Torah stories. Here, besides the Torah itself, or at least the uh, parts of the Chumash itself, there's one time uh, through the year uh, in the Jewish calendar that the story becomes the most important thing, and that is at the Seder. In, uh, part, in, in this unusual Haggadah that was published several years ago called New American Haggadah, it was a, a collaboration of four or five different American Jewish authors. The most important one, of course, is Lemony Snicket, who has the funny uh, commentary uh, inside this uh, uh, Haggadah, but the other ones that have a commentary on, around the sides of the page. So uh, Dr. Uh, Rebecca uh, Goldstein, who is an author, she's written fiction and nonfiction, and she won the National Jewish Book Award for fiction. She's a MacArthur Fellow. She wrote one of these commentaries in which she points out Haggadah means narration. Lehagid, same word as Agadah, it's, it's a story. Okay, and the Seder insists on the moral seriousness of the stories that we tell about ourselves. And then basically, to some extent, she overlaps here with what she's about to say with what Philip Pullman said. Uh, stories are, are easily dismissible as distractions. The make-believe we, we, we crave as children, losing ourselves in the sweet enchantment of as if. As if belongs to the imagination. But tonight, we are asked to take this faculty of the mind, so beloved by children and novelists, extremely seriously. Meaning, aside from the fact that, um, that the mitzvah of Seder night, besides the eating mitzvah of, of matzah, the mitzvah is Sipur Yitzhia Mitzrayim, tell the story. But the way it's formulated is that uh, you have to see yourself as if you personally went out of Egypt. How do you do that? For starters, with a lot of imagination. So that, that uh, quote that she's referring to, you have to see yourself as if you left Egypt, that is telling you that, yes, there's a mitzvah in the Torah of telling the story of the Exodus at the Seder, but the way to do that is through the imagination. And, uh, and she spells this out a little bit for, uh, uh, afterwards. This is, let me just repeat, this is in the, new, the book called New American it's the imagination alone that can extend the sense of the self, broaden the sense of who we really are. Tonight is the night that we sanctify storytelling. So it's not storytelling in general. It's, it's storytelling about this particular story, but it didn't have to be that way. It could have been that how do we fulfill the mitzvah in the Torah of, it says, uh, and you shall uh, read these words that I tell you. Oh, that's the Shema. So how do we fulfill the mitzvah of the Shema? By reading the Shema. So it could be, maybe, if I, I could imagine, if I didn't know better, I'd say the way to fulfill the story of, of telling the story, the way to fulfill the mitzvah of telling the story of Yitzhiah Mitzrayim is read what it says in the Chumash. If not from the beginning of, uh, of Sefer Shemot, then at least certain chapters. And yet, Chazal, the rabbis who set up the, the Seder, no, 
They didn't want you to read from the Chumash. They wanted you to tell the story yourself, starting from your imagination. You, you imagine as if you went out of Egypt. So that's, wow, that's, that's a, uh, an unusual way of, of uh, tying in the significance of storytelling, tying it into the Seder. And the one who really spells this out and talks about the importance of storytelling in general uh, in uh, Torah life is Rabbi Sachs. Um, here in source number four, um, of course, we, uh, and these days we're all davening for, for him to get better, Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi ben, ben Weba. Rabbi Sachs in, uh, in a Dvar Torah on Parsha Bo describes this as the, the history of storytelling as an essential part of moral education. And he points out that through, in, through the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, Moshe three times turns to the future and to the duty of parents to educate their children about the story that was shortly to unfold. Why? What's extraordinary about this? Rabbi Sachs explains top right, and he, you have to imagine that he's the one who's uh, reading this. It's truly extraordinary. The Israelites have not yet emerged into the dazzling light of freedom. They're still slaves, and yet already Moses is directing their minds to the far horizon of the future and giving them the responsibility of passing on their story to succeeding generations. In other words, telling a story is so important, Moshe told them to tell the story before it even happened. That, that's, that's very, very uh, unusual, or as Rabbi, Rabbi Sachs would say, true, truly extraordinary. So, and then he goes on to say, I only quote parts here because we have a lot more to, uh, to cover, but why, why tell it through a story? So he quotes uh, Alistair McIntyre, a uh, contemporary philosopher. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? So the story in which, it's not just a story that happened to my ancestors, but a story that happened to me, a story with, this is, this is my story. It, wow, well then, now I understand what it's all about. We were slaves in Egypt and God took us out and made us free and gave us Torah and brought us to the land of Israel. That's, that's a good way to summarize the story of, of, of the Chumash as well as the story of, of the Jewish holidays. Um, Rabbi Sachs goes on to say, what other cultures have done through systems, Jews have done through stories. And in Judaism, the stories are not engraved in stone on memorials. They are told at home, around the table, from parents to children as the gift of the past to the future. In other words... If it's that important, if the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is not just something that happened to us, but it's who we are, then it's so important that it cannot be presented as just the law. It has to be presented as a story, or not just a story, but a story told by my own parents. And then I'm expected to tell it to my children and grandchildren, etc. And thus we have an unbroken tradition going back 3,000 years. It's our story. Uh, and Rabbi Sachs concludes that uh, the Jewish story is in its way the oldest of all, yet ever not. We're each a part of it. It tells us who we are and who our ancestors hoped we would be. Storytelling is the great vehicle of moral education, which is a different way of saying what Philip Pullman said at the end of, uh, of his piece. Having said that, there are a couple of other aspects that, that I found important to emphasize about the value of storytelling from a Torah perspective, then we'll move away from verses. One of them is in the uh, relatively obscure Midrash, Rav Kahana, um, in which 
uh, it describes when God appeared to the Jewish people at Harsinai and gave us the Torah, God presented several different faces. Uh, God uh, didn't just recite the words, but God presented different aspects of himself, quote-unquote, of his face. Uh, harsh and regular and explaining and playful. And each one corresponds, each quote-unquote face of God corresponds to a different part of the Torah. The, the serious part refers to Tanakh. You have to be serious when you were in Tanakh, uh, uh, as if you got it at Mount Sinai. The, the ordinary face, that's when you, you were in Mishnah, meaning Halacha. The explaining face, that's when you explain Talmud, which would seem to be the Gemara, the Halachic aspects of the Gemara. But Panim Socha Kot Agadah. Playful face, the smiling face, that's when you teach the Agadah, meaning the non-halachic parts of the, uh, of the Gemara. It's not enough that, uh, it's not just that there are major parts of the Gemara in rabbinic literature that are told as stories and um, uh, advice and, and medicine and uh, parables, all sorts of things that are not laws. It's not just that. How do you tell it? How do you tell the stories? You tell it with a smile. This is the entertaining part of Torah, and that's okay. Entertainment, uh, these days anyway, is a major part of, uh, of, of most of our lives in ways that, that would have been unheard of uh, 100 years ago, certainly 150 years ago. But entertainment doesn't have to be a problem. The opposite. We have to teach the Torah in a way that is entertaining as well. Not only entertaining, but at least certain parts of the Torah should be taught in an entertaining way. Entertainment doesn't have to be a bad thing. And one more point before we, we move on, that is here in source number six, something that, that really uh, I found very startling the first time that I saw it um, in the, uh, the art scroll uh, Machzer for, for Yom Kippur, uh, in, the, in the Musaf, where... Uh, Tells the story of Ewa Ezkara, the story of the of the ten martyrs, the great rabbis who were uh, murdered uh, by uh, by the Romans. So, of course, we all know that our scroll is not the kind of book you look at to find modern Orthodox interpretations, uh, interpretations that bring in the outside world, that explain that things are not to be taken literally. And yet, that's exactly what they did. It should be noted that while all ten of these righteous men were, were murdered by the Romans, their executions did not take place simultaneously as described here in the Piyut of Elezkara, nor could they have since two of the ten did not even live in the, in the same generation as the other eight. The liturgical accounts of the martyrdom were not meant as historical records, but as dramatic accounts of the story in order to evoke feelings of loss and repentance on the part of the, of the congregation. Even art scroll, even Rabbi Sherman, who so many uh, art scroll books, even he has to concede that this description, this story, is not meant to be taken literally as it once happened that the Romans murdered ten rabbis. Rather, it happened over the course of, of uh, a number of generations, but it's told this way to evoke feelings. If you tell it as a story... You are allowed to dramatize in order to evoke feelings on the part of your listeners. P.S. Don't do that if you say that you're teaching history. But the whole concept of that, well, history, that's when, that, that's, 
that's not history is not story. History is when you're being academic and you're being uh, uh, as objective as possible. There's a place for that. But as pointed out in this book, by uh, Zahor, by uh, Professor Yosef Yerushami of, um, of Columbia University. It's, it's a thin book. It's a series of, of lectures. See, the, the subtitle is Jewish History and Jewish Memory. He points out that the idea of uh, history as understood by Tanakh and sages and the rabbis in the Middle Ages uh, corresponds to stories. It does not correspond to history as understood today in an academic sense. And it's worth it's worth going through it uh, uh, at least at very least the first essay. Rabbi Sachs quotes extensively from the essay in his Agada. What I'm trying to say is, in the context of a story, sometimes the main thing is what message you want to convey, what emotion you want to convey, and as long as it's presented as a story as opposed to um, as opposed to history, then you have leeway to change, change the details, and that's okay. There's more leeway to use the imagination. Back to what we were saying before, we're going to move in, in, uh, back to the topic of fantasy. The value of fantasy is the use of the imagination. And improperly, the value of storytelling is also the use of the imagination. So let's talk about fantasy. And again, I don't mean fantasy in the technical genre of fantasy as opposed to science fiction, but rather stories that where you can imagine. For sure, in this context, science fiction and uh, and fantasy would, uh, are both are both fantasy. But hopefully, we'll, we'll get to Terry Pratchett, the last source. A lot of sor- stories can be described as fantasy. So, thing that I actually just today, and I changed the story sheet accordingly. Uh, uh, essay by. Um, Rabbi Dr. Ben Goldman, psychologist uh, in, uh, in Teaneck and on the Upper West Side. I teach clinical psychology at Teachers College of Columbia. Uh, he wrote an essay on his Jew side, uh, uh, which he addresses uh, uh, the essay that is in the supplementary material. Uh, called, the essay is about why are there no, no Jewish Narnias, which is a very controversial essay from 10 years ago. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Goldman responds includes this paragraph. Fantasy's place in Jewish spiritual development is to nurture in readers, child and adult alike, the capacity for spiritual imagination and wonder. I mean, the capacity to conceive of and recognize the existence of a being, capital B, outside of the realm of the immediate physical world. When one actually encounters that other or a phenomenon that suggests that others' presence, one experiences wonder. A truly, like a small child whose world is filled with wondrous discovery and magical possibility, a truly spiritual person experiences the wonder of the divine all around him. So Hashemayim Saprim Kavod El, the heavens recount the glory of God. That's all but, uh, to experience a sunset or a rainbow that way, it's all but impossible without the dual faculties of imagination and wonder, meaning you need those, that imagination and wonder in order to see God in the world, in order to appreciate what God does in the world. So he suggests that maybe reading, watching fantasy can develop that side of you, the imagination, as, uh, as we said before, and, uh, and wonder as well. Um, see the comment about, uh, about Narnia. Uh, I hope to speak a little bit about Narnia when we get to um, Harry Potter, but... Um, but 
uh, yes, at least for what for purposes of what we're saying just now, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote his fantasy for children, uh, the, the Narnia series, as a religious Christian. And he viewed it as a religious thing to do, as opposed to his buddy uh, J.R. Tolkien, uh, who thought that it was a religious thing to create a fantasy world without any explicit religious connections. A lot to say about that. Anyway, one more uh, essay. This is really uh, out of the box. It appeared in uh, the Kol Hamavaser Journal of Yeshiva University, and it's not online anywhere uh, at the moment, unless you still have the reference from when it was first put up. Um, so here it is. It's in the Internet Archive. An article by Michael Curran, who later became a rabbi doctor. Doctor is an MD. Uh, he's a gastroenterologist in, in Cleveland. Uh, and he asks, why is it that people wish for a world that contains more than what they experience? In, context, in other words, why would anybody want to read fantasy? So he suggests maybe it ties into the beginning of Sefer Tanya. Every person has an innate yearning for spirituality. So you can apply that and say, since today's world, Western world for sure, is devoid of spirituality, this tendency may manifest itself through attraction to fantasies. In which case, our emotional draw to the fantasy genre should excite us and hopefully bring us to realize that we need to look no further than our own religion to fulfill our desire for meaning. Meaning once we, we can, more or less along the lines of what uh, uh, Dr. Goldman said, uh, said in the previous source, you develop this sense of wonder and a sense that there's something bigger than us out there. You develop that through the fantasy books, and then you know it's only fiction, but then maybe you could start looking at the world in a way that you realize that there really is something about the world that's more than what we see in our daily lives, and that, that thing is, uh, is God's hand. Um, anyway, that's from, from a Jewish uh, point of view. Now I want to talk about a Christian point of view. The next two sources uh, were uh, written by religious Christians. Uh, Jim Ware uh, uh, works for uh, Focus on the Family. And uh, let me just show you uh, his... Where'd it go? Just a second. Yeah. Uh, his books, uh, besides the one that we're about to look at, God in the fairy tale. He also wrote Finding God in the Hobbit, Finding God in the Lord of the Rings, Finding God in, uh, in the Land of Narnia. And uh, I think I read two, uh, two of these four. Uh, they are um, uh, interesting, interesting and, uh, and thought-provoking. So in the, in, and you know it's Christian going in. Uh, so in his book, God of the Fairy Tale, Finding Truth in the Land of Make-Believe, he says, the best fairy tale is a story you wish would come true. It's, this wish is an admission that in and of ourselves, we are incomplete. Like, we need something more. It's significant that in Old English, the word spell meant story. For stories, cast a kind of spell over, over the hearer. And then he starts quoting J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien, of course, was, as I said before, was a religious Christian. Catholic, who uh, was a, like, C like his buddy C.S. Lewis, was a professor, full-time professor at Oxford. And on the side, Tolkien uh, not only wrote what became considered the most, uh, the most important fantasy work of all time, The Lord of the Rings, but he also gave a lecture on it, which is quoted later on this source sheet in source number 17, a lecture called On Fairy Stories. 
um, lecture that, that he gave back in uh, 1939 when fantasy was a lot less socially acceptable than today. Quote from Tolkien, why should a person be scorned if finding himself in prison he tries to get out and go home? Or if when he cannot do so he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls? His point, of course, is that men and women, in a certain sense, are prisoners, meaning we're in a busy world. We're in a world that is not redeemed, galut in the Jewish sense. Fantasies, fairy tales, and dreams of escape are legitimate exercises for the human imagination. This is a point we have not made before. Because the human race does stand in desperate need of rescue and release, and Jim Moore goes on to say, you don't have to be a Christian, you could be, even be Jewish and agree with this and say what we need is a deliverer. What we need is Mashiach, meaning yearning for Mashiach is the Jewish application of the I wish for something more. I sense that there's something problematic about this world. I'm looking towards something, something beyond. So just to summarize what, what we just said, in addition to what, uh, what we said in source number, uh, number eight, numbers eight, eight and nine, that maybe the sense of like there's sense of imagination and wonder can tie in, we can develop that towards uh, sensing God in the world. We can also take the idea of yearning for something more uh, that, that we express through uh, experiencing uh, fantasy, and we can apply that to, um, like, make that the mashal, and, and the nimshal would be yearning for, uh, for Mashiach. Perhaps, source number, uh, number 11, John Granger um, we're not going to talk about him now because I have more, a lot more stuff from him in the Harry Potter class that we'll be doing. Um, but let, suffice it to say that he calls himself the Hogwarts professor, and he wrote three or four uh, books about, about Harry Potter. Um, this book, Looking for God in Harry Potter, um, he suggests that novels, or great novels anyway, can serve a mythological function in a profane culture, which is ties in with what uh, Michael Curran said uh, back here in source, source number, number, number nine, since today's world is devoid of spirituality. So in our culture, oh, in which religious worship has been cast as the opiate of the ignorant, um, fiction, sport, and popular entertainment touch us where we live, feeding our innate hunger for some experience of a greater existence than our flat, mundane concerns. So if you start with that, and, you, and he goes on to talk about how what Tolkien, Lewis, and Rowling all had in common was that they weren't just people who wrote uh, great fantasy works, uh, best-selling fantasy works in English, but they were all deeply religious Christians. C.S. Lewis, it turns out, also wrote, uh, also, it wasn't a speech, it was an essay. He wrote an essay called, this, we're still inside Granger, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called, Sometimes Fairy Stories May Say Best What's to Be Said. This is to explain why. A ton of popular Christianity, very important stuff, stuff that is still in print. In fact, uh, I'll just uh, show you a brief before we look at uh, uh, Lewis. Second. Not that, this. The, this is uh, some of the books, some of the Christian books published by C.S. Lewis. Uh, a lot of us have not heard of them because we don't know the Narnia books. But uh, he wrote important stuff in the literature and important stuff on, 
on, uh, on religion. And at least a few of these books, even though he's writing as a Christian, at least a few of these books are used a lot by modern Orthodox rabbis. Oh, yeah, the Narnia books are down at the bottom. Anyway, uh, so C.S. Lewis uh, wrote that he wanted to convey the, the amazing Christian story to young Christian kids, you know, who are going to be sent to Sunday school, whatever. But he's concerned that readers, especially young readers, do not like preachy stories. So the secret to reading the hearts of readers is to recast the story in fantasy. He wrote, supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, suppose one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency, their real power. Could one not steal past those watchful dragons? I thought I could. So... He did, it, he did such a good job that there are even a lot of Jewish kids who read Chronicles of Narnia and have no idea. It goes right over their head that the, these were written as Christian books for Christian kids. Um, there are only a couple of places where it hits you over the head. And even then, un, unless the kids are already familiar with some aspects of Christianity, they're not, they're not necessarily going to, uh, going to notice. Um, but the idea is that if a kid really is ostensibly a, a, a believing Christian, then hopefully the sense of wonder that C.S. Lewis wants the Christian kid to have for God, hopefully he'll feel that for Aslan in the story in which Aslan is a very thinly disguised version of, uh, of God. Anyway, that's, um, that's uh, a point I wanted to make from, uh, from John Granger. And then he compares... Uh, that Lewis essay to the Hogwarts school motto, never tickle a sleeping dragon. You could argue whether that's uh, uh, comparable or not, but I think it's very likely that Rowling was familiar with this essay of, of Lewis. Anyway, continuing with, with Lewis, the question that um, a lot of adults don't feel that they can answer is, should adults read, read children's books? So, um, so for example, uh, switching back to uh, to the browser here, um, you may recall uh, that these are the Harry Potter uh, original covers in, in the American edition. Okay, These are the original uh, covers in the British edition, very colorful. Okay, But the British publisher, at least originally, published the first four books in another edition. Same exact words, but with serious black and white, mostly black and white covers, so that you could read it uh, on, the, on the tubes, that you could read, you could be an adult reading these books in public and not have to feel shame that you are reading a colorful children's book. After the first four books, uh, the Harry Potter books were big enough that they didn't have to continue these covers, but what do they uh, switch them to? They continued with different set of covers. Look at this. These are the seven books published for adults in the UK. And you could tell, if you didn't know anything about these books, you could tell that these are serious novels. Look at the, the they're still dark, they're still gray, but they're, these are not for children. Children don't read these books. Don't worry, I would never read a children's book. So that sense, for better or for worse, Americans don't have that sense. Americans are less, uh, 
Yes, I see uh, Richie commented. They look very much like Game of Thrones covers. Yes, that's probably not a coincidence. Um, the uh, before I switch back, the uh, it's a good question. Why uh, should an adult be uh, be embarrassed reading a children's book? Well, C.S. Lewis, who wrote both nonfiction and fiction books for adults and fiction books for children, he had something to say about this in his essay on stories. He says it's usual to speak of a playfully apologetic tone, uh, like def basically defensive, about one's adult enjoyment of what are called children's books. I think the convention is a silly one. No book is really worth reading at the age of 10, which is not equally and often far more worth reading at the age of 50. Except, of course, books of imagination. The only imaginative, imaginative works, notice he uses that term again, that we're, we're identifying fantasy with imaginative literature. The only imaginative works we ought to grow out of are those which it would have been better not to have read at all. That's a, that's a very powerful point. And just to tie that in with a great line from a Canadian uh, novelist, Robertson Davies, a truly great book should be read in youth, again in maturity, and once more in old age, just as a fine building should be seen by morning light at noon and by moonlight. Well, he's a good writer. Um, but a different way, a different way of of, of presenting this by Pietro Travers, most famous for um, for her uh, Mary Poppins book, uh, which uh, here are the covers. Uh, there are, six of these are actual story books, and uh, and the other two are supplementary. One's a, a recipe book. One is a A to Z book. If you've only seen the Mary Poppins movie, uh, I recommend reading the books. They're good even though Mary Poppins in the books has only a little bit in common with Mary Poppins of the, of the movie, which is why uh, it wasn't just made up for the movie Saving Mr. Banks that P.L. Travers was very upset by what Disney did with, uh, with her books. But she wrote a fascinating essay back in 1975 called On Not Writing for Children. And she says that it's to... to to, to label books from 5 to 7, from 9 to 12, this is hard, both on children and on literature. If it is literature, indeed, it can't help being all one river. You put into it, according to age, a small foot or a large one. In other words, if it's good, the fact that it can be enjoyed by a child shouldn't take away at all from the fact that I can enjoy it as an adult. If anything, the fact that a child can read it just means that a child can read it on a, ch on a child's level. So imagine somebody who says, oh, I would never read the Chumash. You know, like, they teach that to kids. So how good could it be anyway? How deep could it be anyway? Like, what a stupid thing to say. You know, a child reads it as a child, and an adult reads it with the depth of an adult. Isn't it possible that books that are considered children's books could, all, the better ones, could also be read on that level? Just one quick quote here that, from someone who uh, publishes children's books that right now, the quality of the literature for children out there is astounding. Uh, I say this to someone who, uh, who reads uh, hundreds of children's books uh, a year. A lot of it isn't that good, but a lot of it is. And a lot of it that was not available at all when I was a kid. I highly recommend anybody who uh, has not read children's books lately um, to, uh, to check out what's, uh, what's available. Anyway, our last uh, subtopic is... How did fantasy become a children's thing? After all, if fantasy is, as we suggested before, fantasy is a, a book or other uh, work of, of culture that 
emphasizes the imagination. Uh, imaginative literature. What does it have to do with children? Okay, children can appreciate it, but why should it be only children? So I found a couple of suggestions, a couple of answers to this question, theories from people who wrote books for children. First one is Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, just died uh, two years ago, and she, uh, she wrote a lot of books. Here's a, uh, here's a couple of shelves from the Toronto Public Library. These are all books by uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, and it's not all of them either. Uh, tons, uh, at least 100 short stories, uh, a couple of dozen novels for adults, a whole bunch of novels for, for kids, most famously the Earthsea series, uh, a bunch of, of nonfiction essays, uh, really, uh, really impressive. If you get a chance to watch the PBS documentary about um, about Ursula I recommend that. Um, so she wrote an essay for the British uh, newspaper or mag uh, publication, uh, New Statesman, in which she tackles this issue. And she starts by saying that um, if you return to the Snow Queen or Kim, books that are considered for, for children by Hans uh, Anderson and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, respectively, you may well discover a book far less simple and unambiguous than the one you remembered. That goes back to what I said a minute ago about the Chumash. That shift and deepening of meaning can be a revelation both about the book and about yourself. Curiously enough, most of these lifelong children's books are fantasies. Now, you could argue that Kim is, uh, is not, but what's a fantasy? Oh, uh, let's define it book in which magic works, animals speak, etc. Fascinating theory that she suggests. When there began to be such a thing as books written for children, which was not a thing through history, when that, when that started in the mid-19th century, not that long ago in human history, fiction was dominated by the realistic novel. Romance and satire were acceptable, but overt fantasy was not. You know, good luck finding fantasy novels for adults from the 1800s. So for a while, fantasy found a refuge in children's books. Like you're telling me that George, George MacDonald's books, he was, uh, among other things, C.S. Lewis's uh, literary hero. George MacDonald's books are for children? Yeah, a child can read them. But they're a lot deeper than what you expect from a child's book. So there, among children's books, fantasy flourished so brilliantly that people began to perceive imaginative fiction as being, quote, for children. But to conflate fantasy with immaturity is a rather sizable error. And she goes on to say, on top of the, uh, of the next page, uh, does any other kind of fiction cross age lines this way, the way that fantasy does? Maybe, but offhand, no. Offhand, fantasy is, is, is the one. And then she comes back to Harry Potter. Of course, Harry Potter, that's, you could say, oh, that's competition for her series. But she was very happy about it. The Harry Potter phenomenon confirmed that fantasy builds a two-way bridge across the generation gaps. Adults trying to explain their enthusiasm for Harry Potter told me, I haven't read anything like that since I was 10. And I think this was simply true. Discouraged by critical prejudice, rigid segregation of books by age and genre, and unconscious maturismo, Many people literally had not read any imaginative literature since childhood. Okay, so rapid, immense success made the Harry Potter books re respectable. Indeed, obligatory reading. So people read and rediscovered the pleasure of reading fantasy. That's an interesting point. That is that through, 
because fantasy can appeal to children and adults, therefore, that's a good way, getting an adult to read a great children's fantasy novel is a good way to, is a good gateway for an adult to get into high-quality children's literature. There's a lot of high-quality children's literature now that isn't fantasy, but you might as well start with, uh, with fantasy. Uh, Tolkien, in that same essay, uh, that same lecture that we mentioned before, he has a, um, a variation on this, on this idea. I don't know, maybe Le Guin got it from, uh, from Tolkien. But he suggests the association, remember, he was speaking in 1939 when um, the uh, fantasy was not taken seriously by, uh, by adults. The association of children and fairy stories, by which he means fantasy in general, is an accident of our domestic history. Fairy stories are in the modern lettered world have been relegated to the nursery, meaning like the children's, children's bedroom, as sh the same way as shabby or old-fashioned furniture is relegated to the playroom, primarily because the adults do not want it, and they do not mind if it's misused. It's not the choice of the children which decides this. Children neither like fairy stories nor, more nor understand them better than adults do. No, they're just, you know, the... the you know, in fact, only some children and some adults have any special taste for them. But he basically argues that children do not choose fantasy stories to be fairy stories to be for them. That because the adults didn't want them, so they, the adults gave them to, uh, to the children. But that doesn't make them children's stories. And to be honest say about fairy, fairy tales, fairy tales are children's stories. I don't mean some of the versions that are, have been Disney-fied, but like the Brothers Grimm, and the, especially the versions before Charles Perrault, a lot of those are really not, really not children's stories if you want to protect your children in, the, uh, in any way. That was an interesting point. But who argues with Tolkien? Travers. Same person uh, we mentioned before, uh, author of the Mary Poppins books. She says that the country where the fox and the hare say goodnight to each other. This is the place we're all seeking. You know, the, the, the above, the, the, the place beyond where we are, the, the what if there were something more than our world. All, we're all seeking, child and grown-up alike. We're looking for miracles. We're looking for meaning. We want the fox not to eat the hare, which, of course, was in, uh, in real life. We want opposites reconciled. Child and grown-up alike we want, and I hope you will not think me frivolous when I say, she says, it's not only children, but many grown-ups who in their own inner world are concerned at the sleeping beauty's sleep and long for her to be wakened. And here it's worthwhile remembering that neither the sleeping beauty nor Rumpelstiltskin was really written for children. In fact, none of the fundamental fairy stories was ever written at all. They arose spontaneously from the folk. These were folk stories, and they were transmitted orally. It wasn't until the 19th century when the collectors, primarily Grimm, the Grimm brothers, set them down in print. The children purloined them and made them their own. That's a little different from Tolkien. Travers says, they were the perquisites of the grown-ups, and the children simply took them. For in the long run, it is children themselves who decide what they want. Let's put another Unlike Tolkien, who says the adults didn't want them, so they were relegated to the children, Travers thinks, no, children took them because they wanted them. Oh, and then as a result, adults associated them with, with children, and adults, uh, some adults are, are snobby about it. But what she doesn't address directly here is, why do the children take them? The children took them because the children understand that there's a value in the imagination, or alternatively, there's a value in storytelling. Both aspects of which, storytelling and uh, fantasy, I've tried to uh, emphasize 
have been uh, our, our key elements of what's so great about, uh, um, about fantasy in the sense of imaginative literature. I see uh, Anne wrote, same thing happened with comic books. Uh, comic books were considered for, little, for young kids, and now the format has got, gotten highly sophisticated, but the bias against comic books is still there. Right, that's why, uh, thank you. That's why we don't call them comic books, we only call them graphic novels. Um, and, then, and, and they're bound, you know, with serious binding, and then, then they must be, uh, with hard covers, thank you. With hard, and that's how you know it's uh, serious. Just want to conclude before I take questions with a fascinating suggestion from Terry Pratchett. One of my favorite authors, uh, Terry Pratchett, who just passed away five years ago, he wrote many books, mostly in the uh, Discworld series. You see uh, the titles here on the, uh, on the screen. Oh, wait, not all of them. Here, here's some more. Um, they are a type of fantasy, but they're funny. And not only is he a good writer, but he is the only author I've ever come across who kept writing stories in the same genre and got better at writing as he went along. I can't say that for anybody else. Anyway, that's my pitch for Terry Pratchett. Uh, in a collection of his essays, call, in a, the, uh, this essay is called Whose Fantasy Are You? He said, we like to build these little worlds where everything gets sorted out and makes sense. And if possible, the good guys win. No one would call Agatha Christie a fantasy writer, but look at the books she's most typically associated with. Tiny, isolated little world, usually a country house, an island, a train, where very careful plot is worked out. No mad, no mad axe man for Agatha. No unsolved crimes. Hercule Poirot always finds the clues. In other words, it's not just mystery. It's a mystery which is a fantasy and with a nice happy ending that is so different from murders uh, and crime in the real world. And he goes on to say, look at Westerns. Oh, the famous code of the West largely consisted of finding somewhere where you could safely shoot the other guy in the back. But we don't want to know that. We'd rather believe in Clint Eastwood, meaning the Hollywood version of, uh, of the Western. I would, anyway, he says. Almost all writers are fantasy writers. But some of us are more honest about it than others. And everyone reads fantasy one way or another. Uh, in other words, all fiction, or almost all fiction, is fantasy, what I'm trying to say is that when you talk about getting back to the point of what's the appeal of fantasy, what's the appeal of imaginative fiction, it's that it's about the imagination, it's about a type of wish fulfillment, and it's open about it. It doesn't try to hide it the way that other genres of literature do, tending to be, well, I mean, this, it's not something to be, but we... In Pratchett's words, really, it's okay to admit, not his words, but the idea that I think he's trying to convey, it's okay to admit that fiction in general is fantasy. At least, this, at least the stories is a type of fantasy, and that's okay. There's a value in stories. And the people who say, oh, well, you know, I, I don't like... I don't like uh, fantasy. You could say, well, okay, you don't like books about magic, but, but do you like books of science fiction? Because that's type of fantasy. Do you like books with really good stories? Because you could say that's, you know, a story with a happy ending. That's also a type of fantasy because, to be honest, most stories in the real world don't end with everything neatly wrapped up. And speaking of neatly wrap, wrapped up, um, I want to um, want to 
pull this together and uh, and take uh, take questions uh, or comments. Going back to the, uh, uh, to the to the title, the title was storytelling and the value of fantasy imaginative literature, and I tried to argue that there's a value in storytelling, which we see from a bunch of Torah sources, and there's also a value in fantasy, which a couple of contemporary um, Orthodox writers, Orthodox Jewish, and maybe even Orthodox Christian writers have pointed out, and the two of them together uh, are often found in, uh, in children's literature. Um, anyway, so um, going to look at the, uh, the chat now. Um, the uh, Perizamic, uh, hence the importance of Midrash. And as Rav Moshe Wilkinson suggests, we can continue creating Midrash even now. The, thank you. The, the, a creative reading of the Chumash, you could argue uh, that where is the place, and this is a larger question, where is the place for our, our interpretations? To, to some extent, you say there's, a room for, there's room for creativity. Creativity is not the same thing as telling a story, but it definitely involves using the imagination. And some of the more imaginative interpretations uh, that we find, let's say, from, um, um, from Shadal or, uh, or Beno Yaakov uh, or any of the other commentaries of the last 100, 150 years, um, if we were just learning the classic commentaries, we would never have thought of a lot of those interpretations. Um, the... Uh, let me just uh, repeat that the source sheet uh, is found on the, uh, on the page uh, of, of this course. I'll just share it uh, again uh, for those who might have missed it at the, uh, at the beginning. Just a minute, not this page. Uh, this page, where you go to the, uh, to the course page, the one that looks like this, and then you scroll down and you click on the little Valium signal. Uh, symbol on the right-hand side and shows you uh, the handout, the the PDF, the source sheet that we just used, and another one that I'm not using at all, but it's something interesting and uh, relates to uh, to the topic, and uh, and I recommend it. I'm going to uh, end the recording now, and then I'll stay for for future questions. Thanks to everybody for. Uh, uh, for joining me one week uh, from now, our topic is superheroes as uh, as role models, and uh, I hope that uh, that you can join me for for that.